Some of you have heard my testimony of how I became a Christian. I was 15 years old, living in Connecticut, and going to a public high school, and I had a geometry teacher who would start his class every day allowing the students to talk for five minutes about anything they wanted to talk about. Well, one day we were talking about UFOs. And uh, one student said he thought we were here because aliens came many, many years ago and mated with primates. And then there was a lively discussion about that. And then after my teacher, his name was Mr. Jolly, began to wrap up this discussion and get into geometry, he said, well, I don't believe that's why we're here. I believe we're here because God created us. Well, after that class, I was intrigued by what Mr. Jolly had said, and so I went by his office during a free period to see what he meant. And he told me that he thought I was searching for God and that I should go and buy a Bible. And in the Bible, I could find who God is. Well, that afternoon, I got on my 10-speed and rode down to the center of town to the remarkable bookstore, a, a local bookstore. And I walked in and took a New Testament paperback off the shelf and bought it and brought it back home, and I started reading every night. Mr. Jolly had told me to start in the Gospel of John, and so I began reading in the Gospel of John. But then I came to John chapter 3, and I was perplexed at its meaning. And so I went back to ask my geometry teacher, what does it mean when Jesus says, you must be born again? Well, he explained this to me and invited me to youth group at his church. He was a volunteer lay leader, and I went when he was teaching, and the topic of his message was how to become a Christian, and it was that evening that I was born again. I believed in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I was a new person in relationship with Christ. I knew I was forgiven. I knew I'd been given the gift of eternal life, and so God used this chapter that we're going to be looking at today, 50 years ago, to bring me into his kingdom, to save me. Well, we've been in a summer sermon series called Encounters with Jesus. We've been examining some of the individuals and interactions that Jesus had in the Gospel of John. And today we're going to look at his encounter with a prominent religious leader by the name of Nicodemus. So please follow along as I read John chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. Remember, this is the word of God. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, 
Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. Well, here we are introduced to a man by the name of Nicodemus. He comes to Jesus at night. He's a Pharisee, which means he believes the whole Old Testament to be the Word of God, and he spends scrupulous attention on keeping God's commandments. In fact, the Pharisees were noted for adding to the commandments man-made laws to build a hedge around the commandments so they'd be careful to keep them. He's also a ruler of the Jews, which means he's part of the highest court of the land, the Sanhedrin, the governing body of the Jews. He's an educated man. So why did he come to Jesus at night? Well, perhaps Jesus was always surrounded by people during the day, and Nicodemus wanted some personal, individual time with Jesus. Or perhaps he just didn't want to be seen with him in public, or both. But why did Nicodemus come to Jesus Well, obviously, he's intrigued by the signs and the miracles that he's seen Jesus perform. He addresses Jesus as rabbi, as teacher. And he comes, it seems, representing certain people, his comrades, perhaps. Because he says, we know you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. But, What follows Nicodemus' opening remarks, his greeting to Jesus, is truly remarkable. Jesus knows what is behind his address. It's a burning question that Nicodemus has in his heart. And so that leads us to our first point that we're to see in our text, and that is Jesus answers Nicodemus' real question. In verse 3, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What is the question in Nicodemus's heart? 
It's how can I see the kingdom of God? Or how can I enter into the kingdom of God? Or how can I have eternal life? Or how can I have salvation? But in Jesus' answer, we see him sweeping away everything Nicodemus stood for. He has relied upon his own lineage, being a Jew. He has relied upon his keeping of the law. But Jesus says, none of this will get you into the kingdom of heaven. He impresses upon him, point A, the necessity of being born again. He says, truly, truly, which means solemnly, I declare to you, this is of utmost importance, unless this happens to you, you cannot see, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Well, Nicodemus is totally baffled by this concept. He's a grown man. How is he going to be born again? He can't grasp these spiritual concepts. And he's thinking in terms of the physical. How can someone go back into his mother's womb and be reborn? Well, Jesus persists and teaches point B, the meaning of being born again. He says in verse 5, Unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now these two terms, water and spirit, grammatically in the Greek refer to the same single event. And I believe that Jesus is appealing to something Nicodemus should have known as a Bible scholar. He should have known that water represents cleansing in the Old Testament. Cleansing from sin. And a very specific text should have come to his mind, and that is Ezekiel 36, 25-27. Here, God gives a prophecy of what he will do in the Messianic age. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In other words, God was promising that there would be a time when he would cleanse his people from sins signified by the water. And that God would replace their dead hearts of stone and give them hearts of flesh by putting His Spirit within them. And then Jesus emphasizes in verse 6 that this cannot occur from our human nature, from the flesh. Because that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. The Spirit of God has to accomplish this spiritual birth in us to become children of God. Jesus says to Nicodemus in verse 7, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. This is not a minor thing. This is crucial. This is fundamental. You must be born again to see the kingdom of God. And 
Born again can also be translated born from above. And then to illustrate this, he uses an analogy of the wind. The Spirit's work is like the wind. It blows where it wishes. We cannot control it. We cannot control where it comes from or where it goes. But we hear it and we see it. There is evidence of it by the sound that it makes and by the effect that it has, the rustling of the trees or the grass. And so Jesus is saying, you will see, point C, the results of being born again. They will be undeniable. They will be unmistakable. You will see the results of having a new nature, a new heart. And Ezekiel mentions one of those results, doesn't he? That he will cause us to walk in his statutes, in God's statutes, and carefully obey his rules. But Nicodemus doesn't get it. In verse 9, he says, how can these things be? And then Jesus drills down to point number two, the reason for Nicodemus's confusion. He shows him he is, point A, a spiritual teacher who could not understand spiritual things. He says, are you the teacher of Israel and yet do not understand these things? Nicodemus must have been a very prominent teacher and leader in that time. He knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards, probably had large portions of it memorized, but he could not discern some fundamental truths. One of those truths is that man is hopelessly lost. His heart is dead. It's like stone. And we cannot obey God's commandments fully. We cannot meet God's requirement of perfect righteousness. Furthermore, we cannot pay for our sins. The blood of animal sacrifices is not sufficient He could not discern that abiding by religious activities and rules can't save you. Paul, who was a former Pharisee, would say after his conversion in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And then Jesus shows his true authority to know these things. He shows point B, only Jesus has the truth from heaven. We read in verses 11 through 13, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Who is this we that Jesus says when he says we speak of what we know? Is he talking about the disciples? I don't think so. I don't think the disciples knew a whole lot at this point. I think he's talking about himself and the Spirit and the Father, the Trinity. Jesus' testimony is the true testimony because he comes from heaven. He is the Son of God. Jesus claims here that he is the Son of Man. 
And again, this is a favorite claim of Jesus, especially in the Gospel of John. And it's a reference to a vision that Daniel has in Daniel chapter 7, where one like the Son of Man ascends to heaven and meets with the Ancient of Days, the Father, and is given all authority. And so here, Jesus again is saying he's the Son of Man in Daniel's vision. If Nicodemus cannot grasp or believe these truths that are seen on earth with earthly analogies, how can he believe in greater heavenly truths? And then Jesus addresses how this cleansing and new birth can take place. He uses an incident that occurred in Israel's history to show, and this is point number three, the purchase, the purchase necessary for the new birth and eternal life. Look at verse 14. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. This is a very strange story in Numbers chapter 21. Israel is wandering in the desert uh, after the exodus, and they begin to grumble and complain against God and Moses because of the, the scarcity of food and water. And they begin to regret that they left Egypt. And then the Lord sends these poisonous snakes, serpents, to bite the people. And the people are dying. And they repent and they come to Moses and they say, Moses, beseech the Lord on our behalf. And he prays to the Lord. And God tells Moses to make a bronze serpent and set it up on a pole so that everyone who looks at it shall live. Now this is a bizarre story until you see what it's for. It's pointing to Jesus. What he had to come and do to save his people from perishing. Just as God was teaching the people that there is no antidote for the poison of this serpent, and so therefore you must look at an image of the serpent, which represents the curse, because the serpent, of course, from Genesis chapter 3, uh, represents the curse of man's sin. Well, just as people had to look to that image to be cured, they have to look to the Son of Man. The Son of Man must be lifted up, point A, for them to be born again. Jesus had to be lifted up. And just as that image of a serpent was a representation of the curse, Jesus had to be lifted up on the cross, which is a symbol of the curse. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. This was God's ultimate provision to provide cleansing and forgiveness and new life to his people by Jesus being lifted up. And that term lifted up in the Gospel of John always refers to the crucifixion of Christ and his consequent resurrection and ascension. And so, the second must in this text, must be lifted up, makes the first must, must be born again, effective. This is the heart 
of redemption. Jesus descended from heaven, the Son of God, to become a man without sin and yet remain God in order to be our substitute. God requires two things, basic things from man, perfect righteousness and justice, punishment for all of his sins. And we cannot provide that for ourselves. We cannot be perfectly righteous. We fall short and we cannot atone for our sins. We have a great debt we cannot repay against God. And so Jesus came to be our substitute to fulfill those requirements. He came and lived a perfect life to provide his record of righteousness. And he came to go and die on a cross, that symbol of the curse, to receive the judgment and the wrath that we deserved for our sins. And on the third day, he rose from the dead, confirming that he, in fact, was God, the Son, the Messiah, and that his substitutionary work was effective for our salvation. And so, all those who are born again will turn from their sin and turn from living for themselves and surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and look to Christ and believe on who He is and what He has done for their salvation. And when that occurs, they're declared righteous. They're forgiven of all their sins. They're adopted into God's family. They're made a part of the family of God. They're united to fellowship with the Godhead. They're given the gift of eternal life. And then Jesus emphasizes in verse 15 that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And this is point B. Eternal life comes from the gift of belief in Jesus and his saving work. This expression, eternal life, means that the life that believers begin to have is going to last for eternity. It means the life of the age to come, the resurrected life. But that life, believers, begin in some measure now and it comes to fullness and to consummation when they die and when Christ returns and they receive their resurrected bodies. This is the opposite of perishing, the opposite of being condemned by God and punished in hell forever. It refers to the new spiritual life. Knowing the presence of God, knowing His love, knowing His joy, having a certain hope of going to heaven. And then verses 16 through 18 were given the reason why God provided this salvation through new birth and cleansing through His Son. The final subpoint that we see in our text is point C. The Father gave the Son out of love to save and not condemn. Here we find the most popular verse in the whole Bible, John 3:16. Martin Luther said that this verse was the Bible in miniature. And this verse sheds light on four aspects of God's love. The character of this love. He so loved us. He loved us before the beginning of time and chose us. The object of his love, the world, meaning fallen mankind from all different cultures and nations and ages who were chosen and who would believe. And its gift is His holy, precious Son given as our substitute 
to live and to die and to rise in our place. And the purpose, of course, is whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's important to note here in this text that Jesus mentions the necessity of regeneration, of being born again, before he speaks about faith and the need for faith. In other words, the work of God in our soul precedes the work of God in which the soul cooperates by faith and repentance. And then as a result of our faith, we're given the gift as well of everlasting life. See, the Jews thought that when the Messiah would come again, he would come immediately to condemn the heathens. However, Jesus emphasizes in verse 17 that God's initial sending of his son was not to bring condemnation, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And then in verse 18, Jesus reiterates that faith is crucial in determining whether someone is condemned or not by God. Whoever believes is not condemned, but failing to believe means that you don't have to wait for the day of death or Christ's return to know the sentence that is pronounced upon you. You are in a state of condemnation if you refuse to believe in Jesus. But if you believe in him, there is no more condemnation. Well, what do we do with these incredible truths? How are they to have an impact on the way that we think, the way that we live? Well, let me give you three applications as to how we are to incorporate these truths into our lives. Jesus is teaching on the radical transformation that must take place for everyone to enter into the kingdom of God begs the question, doesn't it? And that is, have you been born again? You know, it should encourage us that we can't get to heaven any other way. No matter how good we try to be, no matter if we're brought up in the church or come from a Christian home, or no matter how smart or religious we are, or, or how good we are, no, what needs to happen is that we need to be born again. God must break in and change us. Let me ask you, what was your role in your natural birth? You didn't have one. And the same is true. To be born again, it's a work of God and His grace alone. And it's a necessity. It's not optional. But saying that you must be born again doesn't communicate that we can make it happen. We can't make it happen. This is not a command. It's not an imperative. It's an indicative In other words, this is what must be done to you for you to have faith and repentance. It's entirely a work of God and His grace. So, what do you do? Well, we need to examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. If we are born again, we will see the effects of it in our lives. They will be undeniable, unmistakable, Charles Spurgeon said, do you feel that now you love God? Now you seek to please Him? Now spiritual realities are realities to you? Now the blood of Jesus is your only trust? 
Now you desire to be made holy even as God is holy? If there is such new life as that in you, however feeble it may be, though it is only like the life of a newborn child, you are born again, and you may rejoice in that blessed fact. See, we may not recall the details of our regeneration. That may have happened to you when you were very young and you don't remember a time. That's not the primary issue here. But the primary issue is, is there evidence of you being born again? Have you heard the call of Christ and believed in Him? Have you responded with repentance and faith? And if that has happened, you are a changed person. You are a new person in Christ. And you will see the effects of that in your life. You have fellowship with God. You're a follower of Christ. You seek to do His will, not to earn salvation, but because you have it already by His grace alone. You want, out of love, to obey the Lord. If you have a loved one or a friend that you're not sure is born again, what can you do? Well, you're to pray for that person. You should also try to expose him or her to the Word of God, the Gospel. That's the instrument that God uses to bring people into His kingdom. 1 Peter 1.23 says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. You see, the Word of God is what God uses to bring about regeneration and repentance and faith. And so, you ought to seek to invite people to church. Invite them to worship, to hear the Word of God preached and read and prayed and sung. Give them a Bible. Ask them to read the Gospel of John. And then tell them, let's let's discuss this if you have any questions. You see, we need to pray that God will do a miracle in their hearts just as He did in you. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. I believe that this eventually happened to Nicodemus. Nicodemus shows up again in chapter 7 of John, speaking up for Jesus in the Sanhedrin. But then later on, he likely saw Jesus crucified. And he probably remembered the words of Jesus, the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You recall back in, or ahead in chapter 19, Joseph of Arimathea, after Jesus had died on the cross, went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body to take him off the cross so that he could have a proper burial before the Sabbath. And who was with Joseph of Arimathea when Joseph took him to his tomb? Nicodemus. In fact, Nicodemus bought 50 pounds of spices to prepare his body. He was no longer afraid of identifying with Jesus. So I think this is evidence that Nicodemus must have been born again. But secondly, if you have been born again, point number two, the Holy Spirit's work does not end with the new birth. It's just the beginning. You know, surveys not too long ago 
of Americans uh, found that most Americans considered themselves born again. It was a popular term. No matter what that actually meant to people, it probably meant they had some type of spiritual experience. But for many, it didn't represent real change. Because when it came to things as sexual purity, they were just like the world. When it came to things like conduct in their marriage or divorce, they were just like the world. Their use of time and money, their life ambitions and priorities, so many so-called born-again people are no different than non-believers. If we have not been born again, then there will be no change in our lives. If we have not changed, we are not born again. To be born again means to be a new creature in union with Christ. We partake of the divine nature. So what evidence is there in your life of being born again? Have you had faith in Jesus Christ? Have you been sorrowful and repented of your sins? Is that an ongoing thing in your life? Do you have a life of prayer in communion with God? Do you have new desires, a new interest to serve the Lord and to worship the Lord and to know His Word and to grow in holiness? Do you have a a love for God's people, a joy in God? You see, our new birth goes on to work in us the life of God, molding us into the character of Christ. And so is there evidence in your life of being born again? Perhaps you're a Christian here, but you look back just recently and you're thinking, you know, there's not a whole lot of evidence recently that I'm a new creature in Christ. Well, that may be because there's sin. Sin in your life, maybe an idol in your life that you've been clinging to that has stifled your new life in Christ. And you need to repent of it. You need to say, Lord, I'm sorry. I admit, I put this before you. Help me to turn from that and rely once again on your grace and follow you. My third point is very quick, and that is rejoice. If you are a believer, you have eternal life. You are not condemned of all people we ought to be happy and joyful because of these truths what glorious assurance we have in this text because our salvation is not due to what we have done but what God has done it's undeserved it's a gift of grace he saved us by causing us to be born again and gave us the gift of faith and repentance and the gift of salvation and eternal life. It's not the strength of our faith that saves us. It's God's grace alone that works faith in us. Faith is the mechanism by which we receive it. And so if you're a believer, then rejoice in this gift of eternal life. Rejoice that you don't have to worry that you will be condemned to hell forever. Rejoice that you're in Christ And you can never lose your salvation because from start to finish, it's a work of grace. And this is a good lead-in to the Lord's Supper. 
Jesus gave us this institution to encourage and and strengthen our faith in his love for us and the sufficiency of his sacrifice to completely atone for our sins. And so may God use this time to confirm us in our union with Christ and to strengthen us in the love that he has for us.